Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. Over the past few weeks, we have been exploring the beloved words of the first letter of John. Written to a group of faith communities between 90 and 100 CE, 1 John offers words of encouragement to a group of churches entangled in conflict and living with the threat of division. As we have seen, one of the main themes of 1 John rests in a single phrase, only found within the Johannine letters, O Theos Agape Estion. In the Greek, it means simply, God is love. Here in the closing verses we shall hear today, the author of 1 John reinforces this fundamental idea, suggesting three modes of love to his readers. The love God imparts to us, our love of God, and our love to our fellow humanity. Let us turn now and hear once again gentle words of reassurance and direction from the author of 1 John. Today's reading is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 16b through 21 from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. Over the last several weeks, we've been journeying through this beautiful little letter in the New Testament called 1 John. It's a letter written at around the turn of the first century to a church or network of churches in the city of Ephesus. And it's written in response to some crisis or controversy that centered around this one fundamental question, what does it really mean to be a Christian? It may sound simple enough, but then again, how could anyone really know at that time what it meant to be a Christian? The big problem for those early believers in the first century was that they had very little to go on. For starters, they didn't actually have a Bible, at least not a Bible like we have today. Some communities may have had a handful of manuscripts or fragments of documents about Jesus and his teachings, but these writings wouldn't be considered biblically authoritative for another 300 years. It wasn't like everyone had their own little pocket-sized New Testaments walking around. The gospel was mostly communicated orally in communal settings. So if something controversial came up in the church, you couldn't just solve it by saying, look, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. That just won't work. Another problem was that they didn't have any official core doctrines that everyone had agreed upon. In fact, it would be another 225 years before the church had some authorized creed that laid out who Jesus really was and 
What has life and death really meant? And this meant that if someone at church happened to argue that Jesus really wasn't the incarnate word of God or that his resurrection was a hoax, you couldn't exactly say, let's get this straight right now, buddy. It says right here in the Nicene Creed, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Capiche? And to top it all off, the early Christians didn't have any official rule book for how to deal with problems or how to resolve controversies in the church. <laughs> and what's a church without a whole bunch of rules and policies and procedures? I mean, we United Methodists have a 500-page rule book. We form committees to study issues and make official proclamations. We have a book for that as well. Every four years, we spend millions of dollars in two long weeks and mind-numbing meetings, debating and voting, debating and voting. And just look what it's done for us. If only the early church had a book of discipline, imagine how much more efficiently they could have resolved their controversies like us Methodists. But they didn't have any of these things in the first century church. No Bible, no creeds, no rule book. Everything was still being worked out. They were building the airplane while they were flying it. And it was wonderful and pure and beautiful. And it was so, so hard. Why? Because people are hard. And because holding a community of people together is even harder. So what do you do when you don't have a Bible or a creed or a rule book to teach you how to do community together? According to 1 John, you have only one option. You have to live the way Jesus lived. You do what Jesus did and love the way Jesus loved, even the hard people, even in the hardest times. What does that Jesus love look like? It's not simply treating others the way you would like to be treated yourself. Anyone can practice the golden rule. It's not necessarily a Christian thing. It's just a nice thing. Just last week, the guy in the car in front of me paid for my order at the Starbucks drive-thru. And when I pulled up to the window, the cashier said, it's good news, that gentleman ahead of you just took care of you. Would you like to pass it on and pay for the woman in the car behind you? I looked back in my rearview mirror and thought, if I were her, would I want me to pay for her grande, ice, skinny, vanilla, upside-down caramel macchiato? I felt moved in that moment to do the right thing, and I have to say it felt pretty good to treat that woman behind me the way I had been treated. And as I drove away, my $14 grande dark roast coffee never tasted so good. The golden rule is lovely, but don't be fooled. It's not love's highest achievement. You can treat others the way you'd like to be treated yourself and still not love them or even never meet them. But Jesus' love is the higher love. And it's captured in the only commandment Jesus ever gave us. Love one another the way I have loved you. Lay down your pride, your rights, your needs, your titles, crowns, and privilege, and love like Jesus. Bend down and wash each other's feet. Break bread and feed the betrayer in your midst. Pray for your enemy. Lay down your life every day in a million different ways if you have to. 
just love one another the way I have loved you. That's what John the Elder was saying in his letter to those early Christians in Ephesus who are struggling to stay together. And it's what he's saying to us even today. Christians, stop hiding behind your Bibles. Stop using your creeds as a weapon against each other. Put your tired rule books back on the shelf and love like Jesus loved. John calls it perfect love. And by perfect, he doesn't mean mistake-free or flawless. He means complete or mature. And by love, he doesn't mean some random act of kindness at the Starbucks drive-thru. He doesn't mean doing something nice that leaves you feeling good about yourself. The word for love here is a familiar one, agape. Agape love is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that expresses itself in seeking the highest good for the, the one being loved, regardless of how it makes you feel at the time. So when you put these two words together, perfect and agape, you get this rare kind of love in the world that is so committed to the other's highest good that the one doing the loving will endure just about anything to see that love have its full effect. Have you ever seen this rare kind of love? For years, a single mother sacrifices everything, working two shifts six days a week just to get her kid through college, just to give her kid that one opportunity in life that she never had herself. I knew a man who slowly lost his wife to Alzheimer's at a very early age. They hadn't even reached retirement yet. They had so many plans for their future, but every day instead, three times a day, for 20 years, he would drive to the nursing home to feed her, to bathe her, to read to her. Have you ever seen what perfect love can do? Well, where does it come from? How in the world do we ever learn perfect love? John the Elder says it, it comes from knowing God. And it's only by accepting God's perfect love for us that we can ever practice that same perfect love for others. But what stands in the way of experiencing and practicing that perfect agape love, according to John the Elder, is fear. In today's reading, he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. Have you noticed that we humans have so many fears? What are you most afraid of? Do you find yourself jumping at the sight of a spider? Do you work up a sweat at the mere thought of boarding an airplane? What's on your list? Fear of death? Fear of snakes? Fear of heights or clowns or zombies? Some people claim to suffer from homophobia. That's a real fear. If you're one of them who suffers from this fear, I, I don't want to know. Homophobia is the fear of listening to sermons. And I just say, get over it. 
But the number one fear reported by Americans is called glossophobia. It's, it's the fear of giving a speech or presentation before a crowd of people. It's the fear of public speaking. And now do you see why it can be so hard to do church? Apparently, we all get together here in this space and no one really wants to preach a sermon and no one really wants to listen to one. But there are two fears that John the Elder writes in our passage today. And it's how we can overcome these fears. We, we can't ever experience the perfect love of God, nor can we ever practice the perfect love of God in the world. And what are those two fears? What are these two most debilitating fears? John describes them, well, the first is this, the fear of not stacking up. John puts it this way, love has been perfected in us so that we can have confidence on the judgment day because we are exactly the same as God is in this world. John envisions a moment in time in which we'll be judged by God. But he says that we who have accepted this perfect agape love of God, we have nothing to fear about that day. It's not because we're blameless. It's not because we can present ourselves to God, a long resume of all the good things that we've done over the course of our lives. He says we can stand with boldness or confidence before God, not because of all the good we did or all the bad we didn't do, but simply because we've been accepted. And we have accepted that God has accepted us as imperfect as we are. But the image we have of ourselves is far different from the image God has of us. We fear we don't stack up to God's expectations. When we look at ourselves, how often do we see the darkness of our unspoken thoughts, the disappointments of our past, the shame of our mistakes, all the terrible things that we've said and done, and all those terrible things done and said to us? To be human is to struggle with this inner sense that we are somehow inherently flawed. But do you have any idea, any idea, how lovely you are to God? It sounds like such a cliche, I know. Yeah, yeah, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible, blah, blah, blah. But somewhere in the human heart, or the human psyche, I don't know, somewhere between maybe the thyroid and the spleen, I, maybe somewhere between the ears, who really knows? But somewhere is this hidden gland we never talk about. We don't have a name for this gland because no one knows for sure where it can be found with any certainty, but it's there in every one of us. I call it the disapproval gland. And we all have one. And most of the time, it's so overactive in our lives that it controls our lives. How we perceive ourselves, how we perceive others, especially how we perceive God. We're all born with this disapproval gland, and it flares up from time to time. We fall short, we make a mistake, we get rejected by someone or some opportunity, or we simply don't measure up, or we don't get the affirmation or attention we really need. And suddenly we feel disappointment with ourselves. We all experience this. It's natural. It's horrible at times, but it's human nature. 
therapy helps. But what makes the disapproval gland most feverish and debilitating, even fatal, is bad religion. That toxic Christianity that says that that God is so disappointed in you, that God even disapproves of you for any number of ridiculous reasons, because you messed up or broke a commandment, because you experienced doubt in your faith and you have too many questions, or because you got a divorce, or ended a pregnancy, or committed a crime, or because you're gay, or trans, or an addict. So forgive me for asking what seems like such a trivial cliche question. But I have known and loved too many people over the years who, thanks to bad religion, fear that they will never stack up before God. And so they give up on God because they assume God is a judge rather than a lover. They can't seem to ever be perfected by God's agape love because they have made perfection a prerequisite for earning that love. But still, do you have any idea just how lovely you are to God? Have you ever beheld the face of God beholding you in joy? Like a mother beholding the face of her child. God is too busy loving us with perfect agape love to ever, ever feel disappointment with us. I've mentioned David Roche before in a sermon. He's the self-proclaimed pastor of what he calls the Church of 80% Sincerity. It's a church I might want to join. His mission is to help people believe that they are actually loved and lovable at least 80% of the time, and, and so he converts people by telling his own story. Roche was born with this large benign tumor on the bottom left quadrant of his face. Surgeons tried to remove it when he was very young, In the process, they removed his lower lip and gave him such extensive radiation that the whole lower part of his face stopped growing and he was covered with plum-colored burns. And now he's in his 60s and he speaks across the country about the hidden, scarred parts inside all of us. The fear deep inside that we're unacceptable. He says... Everyone has the fear of being in some way defective, unlovable, unacceptable to society. This is the true disfigurement. Countless times every day, we are driven to moments when we turn away from our own images in dismay and despair. In this accumulation of vulnerability, he writes, Our sense of self-worth is constantly assailed and eroded. Every person, no matter what their appearance, must reach the point of self-acceptance. That magical moment, he says, is the key to living an integrated and full life. John the Elder says it starts with God. It starts with knowing how lovely we are to God. If you have ever feared the disapproval of God 
or ever, ever felt that God is disappointed in you? Chances are you've only come to know the God manufactured by human religion and have not yet truly encountered the God of perfect agape love. Because John the Elder today tells us this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. And right here, according to John, is the second fear we most struggle with as human beings, the fear of punishment. There has always been this coercive, manipulative thread running through Christianity. It seeks to motivate and convert people through the fear of punishment. It was apparently a message running through the church that John is writing to, and it runs through so many churches even today. Instead of preaching salvation for something, it's preaching salvation from something, hell, sin, punishment, damnation. Over the years, I've counseled people who, having come to the end of their lives and facing their mortality, are sadly afraid of what might become of them after they die. Maybe they've neglected God or run from God, denied or rejected God, and, and now they're filled with regret or dread, fear. More than a few in those moments have asked me to baptize them, a request which I have never denied, but which often breaks my heart. All this time, this whole life long, they thought God was a punisher to be feared rather than a lover to be pursued. John reminds us God is love, perfect agape love, a love which longs for the return of every prodigal child and which never gives up searching until we're found. Do you remember as a child ever wondering why bad things happen to you? You fall off your bike, you, you get lost in the story, you suffer some accident or indignity. And you ask yourself or you ask God, what did I do to deserve this? Do we ever stop asking that question? Do we ever stop worrying about when God might finally get around to balancing the books on our past transgressions? God is too busy creating second chances out of love to ever, ever be bothered with devising consequences for our having missed the first ones. David Hilfiker was a doctor in Washington, D.C. He practiced what he called poverty medicine. In the late 1980s, he helped found what was called Christ House, a medical residence facility for the poor and the addicted who had been denied treatment by area hospitals. He wrote a book about it called Not All of Us Are Saints, a wonderful title. In the book, he tells the story of a homeless alcoholic named Clint. And Clint had worked with him for more than a year in detox. Clint's liver had been devastated by a lifetime of drinking. He was near death when he entered Christ's house. 
After months of recovery and sobriety, Hilfiker thought that Clint had made it. So he was released to a halfway house, but soon returned to the streets and began drinking again. Over and over, Clint would return, only to stumble again and again. Each time, as he drew closer to death, Hilfiker's heart broke a little more. And then one day, Clint just disappeared. Years later, on a Sunday morning, the pastor of Christ House, unbeknownst to Hilfiker, had invited Clint to serve communion at the worship service. Clint had been in recovery for several months. In fact, he was a new person. As Hilfiker came forward to receive the sacrament, he saw the stone chalice in Clint's dark, weathered hands. And when he looked up, Clint grinned a broad, beaming smile, almost a laugh. And he said, this is the blood of Jesus. And Hilfiker said that he tried to return his gaze, but he couldn't keep back the tears that were spilling down his cheeks. He could see the light that was long covered by childhood abuse and alcohol. That light had flickered and was burning again. God is not a punisher, but a lover who patiently tends to the flickering light in all of us. Our takeaways for today. God is too busy loving us with perfect love to ever feel disappointment with us. God is too busy creating second chances to ever be bothered with devising consequences for our missing the first ones. Choose delight over disapproval and tend to the flickering light in everyone. So
Christ is risen Bow down before Him For He is Lord of all Sing Alleluia Christ is risen And oh what a The Savior's arms are open wide Forgiveness is found in The perfect love of Jesus Christ Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.